We've been, uh, if you've been with us, you know this, but if you've not, let me explain. Um, from the beginning of the year, we've been thinking together about prayer, about the way we pray, about how we pray, about why we pray, and um, linking it to this idea of uh, prayer being um, not something extra that we do, but something that is part of our everyday life with God. We spent January uh, really looking at it in, in, in the light of um, our own sort of statement of values, really, our, our desire to be as a church. And what we've said together is we are a growing community of whole life disciples. That means that the gospel changes everything about the whole of our life. And we're a group of people who want to be alert to God and his leading. We want to be attentive to one another and the moment we're in. And we want to be good news to those around us. It's very simple, but we want to be alert to God and we want to be attentive to one another. And in a sense, during January, what I was trying to do was say, well, how does our life of prayer enable us to be alert to God? How do we hear what God might be doing in our own lives? And in this month of February, what I want to do is move the focus. How does, how does our life of prayer enable us to be attentive to people around us? How do we know how to pray for others? Who do we pray for? How do we pray for them? And what might happen as a result? It's a task that lies at the heart of our identity as Christians. 2,000 years ago, thereabouts, Peter wrote to a bunch of churches that were in Turkey, what we would call Turkey now, little groups of Christians, and... Um, in a sense, the struggle that one of the struggles they had was that every day they would sort of enter a world that was dominated by an empire that had no place for God or Jesus. In fact, an empire that had put Jesus to death. And here were these little groups of people who were trying to say, we want to stay loyal to Jesus. We want to stay loyal to this new king. Everybody else had a mantra, a motto, if you will, that said, Caesar is Lord. And it was a, not only a sort of an indicator of your loyalty, but it was a way that shaped your understanding. Because if Caesar was Lord, Caesar would save us if we were in peril. Caesar's financial policies would make us thrive. Caesar would make us great. And here were little groups of people who said, our slogan, if you will, is Jesus Lord that the crucified king is Lord, that he is the one who is for us. And when Peter writes to them, he explains who they are. He says, whatever people might think of you, this is what God says about you. You are a chosen people. You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation. You are God's special possession, that you might declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. And he's talking about these new little groups of churches and saying, you need to know who you are. You need to get that sense of identity. And it's still the same for us. Ian's prayer for Tom was good. Because as well as recognizing the blessing that we wanted to put on Tom, one of the things that 
Ian just prayed for Tom is on the days when no one recognizes your gifts. On the days when no one says you're valued. On the days when no one says we're glad you're with us. On the days when people can only see what you haven't done. When, on the days when people can only see what you failed at. On the days when those voices seep deep into your own heart and mind. Ian prayed, Tom, I want you to know about your identity in Jesus. And in a sense, that's what Peter's doing here. On the days when you feel irrelevant. On the days when you feel like it's not really worthwhile. On the days when you wonder... Is it really worth following Jesus? Peter wants those words to seep deep into your heart. You are a chosen people. You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation. You are, pause for a moment, God's special possession. And prayer is always a secondary action. It's always a response. It's never the first word, it's always the second word. God's given you the first word. Your word is in response. So now, so now what? It's, it's kind of like what Ian tries to do. You're getting a lot of reference in this sermon. None of it was planned. It's kind of what Ian tries to do when he's leading worship. So you, you understand, you're part of our church, you understand how this works. Ian sings a song, we sing along. Mostly. He then, at some point during that first 20 minutes, will pause. And this morning, Annie prayed. Annie's prayer is not the first word, it's the second word. It's a word that's in response to something else that's been said. That's how prayer always is. It's like, <clears throat> if it's not, then what happens is you just pray out of your own worry. But actually, if you hear, you're my special possession, then actually prayer is a second word. It's a responsive word. It's a word back. One of those phrases, though, is the uh, phrase I want you to hold, which is, you're a royal priesthood. Because what I want to say is prayer is priestly work. Prayer is priestly work. Some of you might have grown up in churches, or you might have experience in churches where uh, leaders of churches, ministers, would have been called priests with a particular word. It's uh, a word that goes back a long way, but it's a word that is um, in, in, in the background of the word is this idea of being a bridge builder. A priest is someone who looks two ways. So without getting all sort of overly sort of heavy about it, this was a picture I found that I thought expresses what a priest is. Okay. That's what a priest is. <laughs> All right? A priest holds two worlds in tension. A priest holds, and, but actually, and importantly, looks in one direction. So a priest is holding on to God. And a priest is holding on to the world. That's why you're a royal priesthood. You're the in-between people. 
You're the people who've tasted something, who've received something, who've had something. And you're a people who are praying for others. You're literally the bridge. You're holding to two worlds. You're carrying people. And you're carrying them to God. Even people who wouldn't want to be carried, you're carrying them to God. Last week, um, if you were with us, we, we played a, a little film, a soundscape of um, some of the things that you had said you were burdened by, you were concerned by. We recorded a number of you and then we put it all together and we used it last week. If you want to see where it is, it's on our Facebook page, um, the church Facebook page. You can go and have a look at that and see where it is. But let me, I had the privilege of hearing the individual concerns. Let me tell you what some of you, without naming names, what some of you said. Your concerns, you're carrying the concerns of, someone said my daughter. Someone said the church, I just want to see more of the spirit move. My children and my husband to know the Lord. I want to be called to be a disciple. I want to be able to reach out to others. I'm praying about my work. I'm praying about families that I'm working with and the bad situations they face. I'm praying that I might have patience for those I love. I'm praying for my extended family. I'm praying that I'm always going to be on track with what God wants us to do. I'm praying for my health, the health of other people. I'm particularly praying for their mental health situation. I'm praying for older people who are on their own. I'm praying for mental health issues that are in my own family. I'm praying for the social care of our country and the education of, uh, of, of children. I'm praying for my family's health. I'm praying for my work situation. I'm praying for the health of people in the church. And I'm praying for the church's health. I'm praying about the violence on the streets particularly as regards young people. I'm praying about my work situation. I'm praying about that I might live consistently. I'm praying about the persecution that's faced by Christians around the world. At that moment, you're priestly people. Because you're going, I'm carrying this stuff and I'm going to the one who hears. Temptation and the things that take the f away from prayer are sometimes, until you're convinced that you can't change people's hearts, you'll never take prayer seriously. How many of you have tried <laughs> to change people? I'll give them what for. I'll give them wisdom. I'll tell them what to do. I know what should happen. And how many of you know you've made it worse? Am I the only person in the room? <laughs> you all go, yeah, yeah, you are. <laughs> As it happens. No. Unless you come to the recognition that you cannot change someone's heart, you'll never take prayer seriously. And actually, the more you try and control, the less your prayers will help. Prayer is priestly work. I want you to imagine a man overlooking a plane. So imagine it looked a little bit like this. So there's a man who's overlooking, he's sort of like on a high point, overlooking a plane. And the plane is beginning to burn. There's a city down there, there's houses, there's structures. And the city's beginning to be destroyed and you are watching that happen. Imagine being that man looking over. 
In the Bible, that man is Abraham, who's looking over a plane. Early the next morning, Abraham got up, returned to the place where he stood before the Lord, and he looked down towards Sodom and Gomorrah, toward all the land of the plain, and he saw dense smoke rising from the land like smoke from a furnace. So when God destroyed the cities of the plain, he remembered Abraham, and he brought Lot out of the catastrophe that overthrew the cities where Lot had lived. I'll explain the story in a moment if you can't quite place that story. But here's a man overlooking a plane that's being destroyed. Two things. God remembers Abraham. Now that isn't, that sort of language of remembering is like, oh yeah, forgot about him. No. That language of remembering in the Old Testament is God hears an axe and it's heart and it's, Abraham, I've never deserted you. And he rescues Lot. Who was Lot? Well, Lot's his nephew. Goes back a long way. In fact, he's probably standing in the same place where the decision was taken much earlier. That was in Genesis 19. In Genesis 13, there's a moment come. And uh, Abraham and Lot, his nephew... Um, they're both increasing in wealth and they're both increasing in the people they've got and in their herds and they're just clashing all the time. And so Abraham says to Lot, we can't carry on like this. Why don't we decide that we're going separate ways? We'll always be family, but let's go in separate ways. And Abraham says to Lot, have a look at the land. Which land do you want? Which bit of the land do you want? And Lot looked round, and he saw that the whole plain of the Jordan towards Zoar was well watered, like the garden of the Lord, Eden. Is that good? Like the land of Egypt. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, the editor wants to tell you. So Lot chose for himself the whole plain of the Jordan and set out towards the east. The two men parted company. Abraham lived in the land of Canaan while Lot lived among the cities of the plain and pitched his tents near Sodom. Now the people of Sodom were wicked and were sinning greatly against the Lord. The narrator can't do any more than tell you this was a bad choice. But it's a choice that Lot made. And Sodom... And Gomorrah and the cities on the plain get worse and worse and worse. And what's going to happen? If you have a Bible and you would like to read along, then turn with me now to Genesis 18, verse 16. So, the first book of the Bible, easy to find, verse 16. In the same way that God always deals with us, you're always picking up something in the middle of a story. And uh, the story has been that visitors have been to see Abraham and Sarah. And um, they've told this old couple that remarkably, miraculously, Sarah would become pregnant. And Sarah laughed, as you would do. But when these men, these men from God, these 
angels, these messengers of the Lord. When the men got up to leave, they looked down towards Sodom and Abraham walked along with them to see them on their way. And then the Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation and all nations on earth will be blessed through him. For I've chosen him so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what's right and just so that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he's promised him. And the Lord said, the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and their sin so grievous that I will go down and see if what they've done is as bad as the outcry that's reached me. If not, I'll know. The men turned away and they went towards Sodom, but Abraham remained standing before the Lord. And Abraham approached him and said, will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What if there are 50 righteous people in the city? Will you really sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of the 50 righteous people in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. Far be it from you. Will not the judge of all the earth do right? And the Lord said, if I find 50 righteous people in the city of Sodom, I will spare the whole place for their sake. And Abraham spoke up again. Now that I've been so bold as to speak to the Lord, that I'm nothing but dust and ashes, what if the number of the righteous is five less than 50? Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five people? If I find 45 there, he said, I'll not destroy it. Once again, he spoke to him. What if only 40 are found there? He said, for the sake of 40, I will not do it. And he said, may the Lord not be angry, but let me speak. What if only 30 can be found there? And he answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. Abraham said, now that I've been so bold to speak to the Lord, what if only 20 can be found there? And he said, for the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. And he said, may the Lord not be angry, but let me speak just once more. What if only 10 can be found there? For the sake of 10, I'll not destroy it. And when the Lord had finished speaking with Abraham, he left. And Abraham returned home. Strange old passage, isn't it? It's kind of like raises a whole stack of questions. Not least, can you do that with God? It's a Jewish passage, isn't it? Can you be bold with God? Can you say to God, God, don't you forget your promises? Can you say to God, God, don't forget that you're just? Can you say to God, God, don't forget you're fair? Can you say to God, God, I know that I'm not really in any position to argue with you, but God, <laughs> but God, why is Abraham doing it? Because Abraham's looking over the plain and he's going, my family's there. That's why he's so bold. That's why he's praying like this. Because he's going, my family are there, God. Don't let them go. Don't let them go. Don't forget the promise, God. Don't let, it, don't let them be destroyed. My family are there. God, what if 50? There were never 50 righteous people in Sodom. And I think Abraham knew that. And I think he thought, 
If I can get to 10, if I can barter God down, if I can argue with God so God offers me 10, that will be my family. That is my, that is Lot and his wife. That is my, his son, his daughters rather, and his sons-in-law and any children. It's, it's the family. God, I don't really need to keep on saying it, do I? There's a verse that we read that's really quite crucial. And it's verse 22. The men turned away and went towards Sodom. But Abraham remained standing before the Lord. That's what priests do. They remain standing before God. And go, I'm not going to let this go. In Isaiah, the prophet speaks to the people and says this, You who call on the Lord, give yourself no rest and give him no rest till he establishes Jerusalem and makes her the praise of the earth. Give yourself no rest and give him no rest until God does what he said he's going to do. And if you want to hear it, you hear it then. Once you've started to hear it, you hear it all through the, the Bible, really. But you certainly hear it in Jesus' parables. There was a widow who came to a judge and said, I am not going away till you give us justice. And Jesus isn't saying God's like an unjust judge, but he is saying disciples are like people who go, I'm not going away. Who are you praying for? And who have you stopped praying for? Who have you given up on? (laughs) Who have you said, I've been praying for them for 30 years, nothing's changed. Abraham stands before Yahweh and says, I am not going. That's what it means to be a priestly people. And uh, in chapter 19, um, there's a horrendous uh, scene in chapter 19. Um, But... In verse 16, in verse 15, rather. I tell you what, verse 14. Feels like I'm doing in reverse with God. Verse 14. Lot went out, spoke to his sons-in-law who were pledged to marry his daughters. He said, hurry and get out of this place because the Lord's about to destroy the city. But his sons-in-law thought he was joking. And with the coming of dawn, the angels urged Lot, saying, hurry, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, or you'll be swept away when the city's punished. And when he hesitated, the man grasped, the men grasped his hand and the hands of his wife and his two daughters and led them safety, safely out of the city, for the Lord was merciful to them. God heard the prayer of Abraham. God remembered Abraham. What about the sons-in-law? Well, you can't, you can't take people who don't want to be taken. And it kind of, you know, we'll deal with this as we go through the series on prayer. But when prayers aren't answered, 
And you know there's something here between the relationship between priestly responsibility and the responsibility of people themselves. These sons-in-law prefer to stay in Sodom than they wanted to leave. In a song by Elbow, um, the opening lines say this. A friend of mine grows his very own brambles. They twist all around him till he can't move. It's a great picture of what some people are determined to do. They grow their own brambles. And they grow around them until they will, cannot move. But that doesn't stop you praying. <laughs> and I was thinking about that because you can, I don't know, when, 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 you, when you feel something for someone, do you ever get to the stage where you just want to shake them or do, do, do violence to them in some <laughs> godly way? <laughs> To make them do the right thing. <laughs> you know, you look back and go, crusades weren't all bad. No. Um, let me, as I come to a close, let me tell you about another man who stood and prayed. And he prayed for us. My prayer is not for them alone, the disciples. But I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. I've given them the glory that you gave me that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me so they may be brought to complete unity. And then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you've loved me, Jesus prayed. And Jesus is standing there going, I'm praying that there be unity amongst those people who are my disciples. And those of us who are disciples from time to time goes, yeah, but you've not met the Methodists. <laughs> or the Baptists, or the Anglicans, or whoever. If you knew, you'd know that we were right not to spend any time with them. And so what I'm trying to say in a very simple way is you and I understand what it means to resist the prayer that others have been praying. Who can you see? This morning's sermon is really simple. I wanted to take a picture, a story of Abraham, and I wanted to remind you that God remembered him. And I wanted to remind you that God heard his prayer. And I wanted you to see the picture of a man. What does it take to pray when you're desperate that those you love will not be lost? And I know that you do. I know you feel like that. But I also know the temptation that over time the prayer changes for them to be well or happy or. And I suppose what I'm wanting to say is there's a moment where you need to come back and go, I need to get back at this. What's going through your minds?
skills. <laughs> Excellent. Job done. <laughs> mm. Guilt. But there's something about that, isn't there, that sort of spurs you. Empty guilt just makes you feel rubbish. Good guilt spurs you back. What else? What are you thinking? Renewed hope. Yeah, because of Abraham. And because actually, and I, you know, I've not got time to do it, but believe me, once you start hearing that Abraham story, you see the pattern re-emerging all the way through Scripture. This is what the people of God have always done. Because they've always had to do it. Renewed hope. What else? Yeah, that perseverance. That, that phrase kept coming back to me while I was preparing this. Like Abraham, and it is a very, 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 very loose paraphrase. I am not going away. To God. Yeah, that sort of sense of, well, I prayed. Prayed three days on a row. They still haven't given their life to the Lord, so he's clearly not hearing me. You know. It's a lot deeper than that. It's a lot, it's, it's, it's more emotionally laden than that, but it's actually longer than that. And it kind of, you know, practically then, sort of like, it's almost like having a strategy for praying for these people. You know, all through January, I was trying to encourage you to write stuff down. Write these names down. And look for what God's doing. Because you will forget. And it will remind you. I don't want to, uh, I don't want it to make you feel guilty. I do want to make you feel encouraged to do it. Should we stand together? If you can. These guys will begin just to gently play something behind us. But this is an opportunity for you without, this is not for everybody else to hear. This is for you to raise your hands and say, God, these are the people that I bring to you. And you, I know that it's not like you're not doing this. I know you're doing it. I know there are things, your situations that you're bringing before God, uh, sort of daily, lots of them. Well, let's do it and let's bring this, this offering of prayer to God. That God would remember the prayers of his people. That God would remember the promises that he, he placed over people. For some of you, it'll be families. And you want to remind, almost remind God. And it sounds like, oh, I don't know if I can do that. Remind God of the promises that you've had over your life and of your family's life. 
For some of you, pray and repray the prayers you prayed at dedication services when you offered your children to the Lord. And you prayed that God, that they would know Him. And you say, God, I prayed that prayer back then. I'm back again praying the same prayer. I'm praying for work colleagues. I'm praying for my extended family. I'm praying for my neighbors. I'm praying for my friends. I'm praying I am not going away, God. I'm going to bring these people to you. Just let's take some time. You might end up muttering, and that's fine. Some of you might speak in tongues, and that's okay. You can do that just gently because it's your prayer language between you and God. Some of you will want to do it silently, and some of you will want to speak out in English your own concerns to God. But let's bring them to God. Last week, we read that the prayers of God's people ascend to the throne that they're carried to the throne and then God acts oh God would you act let's just spend a a few moments come on let's do that